My hometown of St. Louis is an awesome baseball town. For those of you who know my story, you know that story. You know the impact of the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck and baseball on my life. You also know it's a phenomenal hockey town. And for those who have read the book On Fire or know the impact of the St. Louis Blues, not only in this community, but also on a little boy named John O'Leary, you know that it's a hockey town as well. What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity inclusion. Keeley Companies CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, in this episode, I already recorded it. I already know what's coming next. I already know who the guest is. I already know some of the questions that were asked Maybe I stumbled over them a little bit, but the gentleman who I brought on to the episode today was capable enough to not only save the interviewer, but to provide content that I know will fill your tank in a marketplace that is so negative and so divided and, and so, in some regards, small thinking in what is possible through our lives. Today's guest will remind you that your life matters that you have the ability to influence other lives for good, that regardless of what you've been through, your best days remain in front of you, but that is a choice you must make. The guest that I'm about to bring on was recorded live. This streamed across YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and now it's streaming directly into your ears through the Live Inspired podcast. If you've never rated this show or liked this show or commented on this show, well, here's an opportunity at the end of this to do exactly that. I'll give you the links. And I think after you hear Bob Costas share his story, share what he's been through, share what he's learned, and to ultimately share what it means for you, you're going to want to do all those things because you won't want to miss any future episodes. My friends, get ready to be inspired and encouraged and educated and challenged to do mighty things through your life with our guest today. His name is Bob Costas. Bob Costas has received, I believe, 29 Emmys for the work that he's done professionally. He's broadcast 12 or so Olympics. He's been involved with every single major sport around the United States and really around the world. He's known for being passionate and articulate and a voice of reason in a marketplace that seldom has that voice. And yet, he's also a wonderful humanitarian. He uh, was forced yesterday to postpone the meeting. He called my podcast producer, which I think says a lot about Bob. Most people have their people call my people. Bob called Amy Loyette. 
which meant a lot to Amy. She came back into my office and told me that. And then a moment later, my phone rings. And it's Bob Costas calling yesterday to personally apologize for postponing the meeting a full day, 24 hours. That's all it was. But he wanted me to recognize that this time today with me, with our listeners, with you today, my friends listening in right now live, that it matters. That's Bob Costas. And there's one more story before I introduce my friend and soon to be yours, Bob Costas. I was sharing with my kids yesterday who we were having on the podcast and uh, Patrick O'Leary, my second born says, so dad, who is it? Who is it this time? And I said, Patrick, it's Bob Costas. And this brown haired 13 year old boy looks up at me and says, claps his hands and says, finally, dad, someone cool. Finally, dad, someone cool. We've had astronauts and war heroes and presidents and authors and mountain climbers and his own grandmother on the podcast. But for Patrick O'Leary today, we finally bring on someone cool. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on someone cool, someone I've looked up to for a long time. His name is Bob Costas. Bob Costas, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John O'Leary, thank you very much. And it's good to learn that I still have some appeal with a younger demographic. I knew, this may interest you, I knew that I connected with people even younger than Patrick O'Leary, because from time to time, people will come up to me at a restaurant or in an airport terminal and say, my children love you. And I'm thinking, <laughs> that's very nice. What's the reason? Cars, cars <laughs> one and three. Pixar Cars. For some reason, I wasn't in Cars 2, but I was the voice of Bob Cutlass in 1 and 3. And not only does that appeal to kids roughly between the ages of 3 and 6, but there's something in that kind of toddler brain, that age range, where they can watch stuff they like over and over. So it isn't just that they watch it once or twice. They watch it every night until they age out of it. So, you know, there, there you have it. I never realized until these parents uh, came up to me one by one to let me know that I had such appeal with people who cannot yet read and write. <laughs> well, Bob, we'll talk about cars one and three, if you'd like today. We can talk about basketball, if you'd like today, and go really deep into your Hollywood journey. But I I'm curious, if, if you were at a school about to speak and a child came up to you. I think this is a good place to begin and say, hey, uh, what do you do? What do you do, Mr. Costas? How would you respond to that today? I'm a broadcaster, which means I speak on radio and television, mostly television, but increasingly podcasts and whatnot, whatever media is and whatever it becomes. Generally, I speak about sports. I do a variety of things. Sometimes I host an event and other times I provide the description of the event as it happens. I wouldn't use the term play by play to a little kid. I think the description of the event captures it more than just uh, the term play by play. Uh, I would say to the extent that they're interested before their attention span lapses up and they run away from me, screaming, mommy, take me away from this man who won't stop yapping at me, uh, that I've also done things outside of sports. And sometimes I interview people, which is what you're doing with me here. And that can take various forms. Sometimes it's formal and sometimes it's just a conversation. Um, and I'm lucky in that uh, most of what I've done in my life is professionally, is things that I'm sincerely interested in and that I dreamt of doing when I was just your age. 
Sally or Johnny. So much of the work you've done, Bob, involves you holding the, the, the notepad and you looking down at the bullet points with the question marks at the end of it. I'm, I'm curious now that you're in this phase of life where you're on the opposite end of the microphone and the opposite end of the news story frequently, which mm -hmm. do you prefer? Do you, do you prefer being the one leading the interview or following the lead of the interviewer? Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstances. There are some people who are actually better guests than they are interviewers. Um, I hope I'm pretty good at both, but how much I enjoy it, it depends upon the circumstances, depends upon who's on the other side of the conversation. Uh, I have learned though through the years, and this isn't exactly what you're asking about here, John, but it might be of interest. When you are someone who covers the news or what passes for news within sports, but also you yourself have been covered, you become sensitive to the fact that it's your responsibility to be as fair and accurate as possible. I'd like to think that I have an innate sense of fairness yeah. and proportion and that context has always mattered to me. But until you have been quoted out of context, until you have been misquoted, until someone either through laziness or cynicism has misrepresented who you are and what you think, I think you become even more devoted to the idea that I'm not going to go that route. Uh, I know I have made mistakes, but they have never been intentional. I've never intentionally misrepresented someone or intentionally been, been unfair to someone, even someone with whom I disagree. It's important. Uh, I always feel this way. I can defend a position I actually hold or explain it, mm. but I'm not going to defend or apologize for a position you have falsely ascribed to me. So it makes me ever more determined never to do that to anyone else on the other side of that equation. Right. So Bob, you know, that's who you are today. And that's the journey that um, has led you to that in some regards. I want to start at the beginning. though. I want to take this thing from St. Louis, a beautiful city that you called your own for quite a while, all mm. the way back to New York, all the way back to your upbringing, all the way back to some of the form formative characters who shaped the man you eventually became. In researching your story, there's, there's really not much shared really about your family of origin. So I, I wanna take us all the way back to New York and some of the interests you had as a kid growing up and some of the, the leaders who informed those interests. So talk, if you will, about growing up in New York. What were your interests back then and who shaped it? Well, I grew up on Long Island, which in terms of the media you receive, radio, television, newspapers, that's New York. Uh, and my father was one of eight children uh, and they all grew up in New York, in and around New York. So my uncles and aunts and my cousins were all in Queens and in Brooklyn. So I spent a lot of time uh, in New York City and was influenced by all the media that came out of there. And I don't think it's very remarkable uh, to say that I was uh, a sports fan, like almost all my pals in grade school and junior high and high school. Uh, I had that in common with them. But maybe one thing that separated me from them to some extent was that I identified with the broadcasters and the writers almost as much as with the players. To me, the coverage of the events and how well and pleasingly it was covered was inseparable from the event itself. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the seeds of wanting to be a broadcaster were planted then when I was still a young child. 
Um, there was another aspect to this, which I've mentioned a few times in other places. My father was an inveterate gambler uh, and he gambled big sums, sums which if he lost, he could not afford. Often the mortgage was riding on whether Whitey Ford could get Al Kaline out or Wilt Chamberlain could for once in his life make a couple of free throws. Um, and there were times when he was flush uh, and he was on a winning streak. I went with him once when I was 14 years old to a donut shop in Brooklyn uh, where we met the bookie who was right out of central casting. Shiny suit, pinky ring, fedora, like with the snap rim and the band right. on it, uh, gravelly voice. And very casually, he slid a paper bag across the counter of the donut shop. And when we went back out to the car, my father counted out $14,000 in $100 bills in 1966. This is tax-free, by the way, since you don't report these transactions to the IRS. And the house we lived in, my dad had bought on the GI Bill for $19,000. So that's, you know, two-thirds or whatever it might be of the cost of our house. But then there were other times, if he was on a losing streak, uh, where some of the bills went unpaid until he could figure out how to get back on top of it. So a lot of my following sports was also following his bets. Mm. And this is the 1960s. He died of a heart attack in 1970 when I was only 18 and he was 42. So this is in the 1960s, way before the internet, obviously, way before ESPN. So while we could watch the Mets and the Yankees and whatever other New York teams or listen to them on the radio, if he had bets on far-flung games, he would give me the keys to the car. I'd be 11, 12 years old. I wasn't going to drive it around the block. But you could get radio reception, if you were lucky, in the car at night better than in the house. So I'd turn the ignition key only far enough to light up the dashboard. And then calibrating the radio dial like a safe cracker, I'd search for games. I'd search for WBAL in Baltimore or WJR in Detroit or 3WE in Cleveland or WLW in Cincinnati, KDKA in Pittsburgh, and my favorite, KMOX in St. Louis, which was the furthest distance away um, from Long Island, but had my two favorites as a team, Harry Carey and Jack Buck. And so I would listen and then I would come back in and report where the game was, where it stood with, with some embellishments. I guess that was my first reporting job. Uh, but I'd cringe if the results were bad for my dad. And then I'd bound into the house happily if the results were good, because I knew that the, the mood of the house depended upon the outcome of my report. So I'm going to show you a picture from 1970. I think I tracked this down appropriately. It will remind you of how good looking you once were Bob Costas. So let's take a look at 1970. You mentioned it was your father's passing this year. It's also a year. That is just awful. It's not that awful. God it's awful. beautiful. It's radiant. Look at, look at, the, look at, look at this. What is the deal with the hair here where it's like real, really long in the front and kind of short on the back and in the sides. It's a reverse mullet, Bob, and it's, it's back in, man. So you're ahead of your yeah. time. You haven't aged at all. I'm curious though, that picture was taken in 1970. It's also the same year that your father passed away yeah. prematurely. How did his death and his passing and his life before that lead you to the maturity of this passion for excellence early in life? Very clearly, well, my, we'll get into your career here momentarily, but you had a unique drive as a young man. And I'm wondering if it was tethered to this loss of your dad. I can't say it was exactly. Uh, my father was a, an intelligent man. 
he was passionate, he was colorful, he was uh, very humorous, but he also had a volatile temp temper. Um, he, he had, in retrospect, emotional difficulties, and he would blame his gambling losses or anything else that uh, afflicted him on others around him, including sometimes his family. Um, and I think if anything, although I loved him and I've often thought through the years uh, how, how it would have affected him to see me be lucky enough to be successful, to be covering the games that he probably still would have been betting on. Would he curse at me at the, on the television as he once cursed at Chris Schenkel or um, Mel Allen or Red Barber, courtly as Mel and Red were? Um, I, I've often wondered about that. There's no way to answer it, but I do know this. Um, my own children who are now in their thirties never heard me raise my voice. Mm. Never heard me disparage them, encourage them, correct them, yes, but never disparage them. Never, never go even one tiny step toward the, in the direction of the kind of trauma that sometimes existed in, in my own home. So I don't think it's a contradiction to say that I love my dad and recognized his admirable qualities or attractive qualities, but there were many qualities he had that if anything, the influence was me being determined not to emulate them. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, sometimes our parents teach us who we ought to become and other times they remind us who maybe we should not be. Yeah. So it sounds like you took the best of what he had to offer, but also learned how not to carry forward the worst of it. And Bob, where it led you to ultimately uh, in the short run was this young high school boy goes off to Syracuse University. He grows his hair even more and ultimately yeah. gets his first real job. I think you're able to see it right now on the screen. Bob Costas at age 22 was selected by a station he mentioned a moment ago, CamelX, to call the spirits. Uh, Bob, you're the youngest broadcaster at that time. Could you talk a little bit about what, what it was like for you to join mm -hmm. CamelX at age 22? Uh, not only was I 22, I was 22 and I looked like I was 11. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that was really, a concern of mine, even though it was radio, um, would people even believe that I belonged there? Uh, and especially because KMOX then was a mecca of sports broadcasting. You could practically, practically have staffed an entire network sports division just with the people who were there and had been there. Mm. Over the years, Joe Garagiola, Harry Carey, Jack Buck, further down the line, his son, Joe Buck, before Joe went full-time to Fox. Dan Kelly was the Doc Emmerich of his time. He was the greatest hockey announcer in the country, acclaimed everywhere. He was the voice of the blues. Um, Gary Bender had a long career at CBS, later wound up at, at KMOX. Dan Deardorff, uh, Jay Randolph, who had a long network television career with NBC. Uh, and, there were, and there were others. Uh, and so when I walk through that door, I'm thinking, not only am I the junior member of this staff, but in terms of ability, we're not talking about potential, in terms of present level of craftsmanship, I can't be anywhere near as good as any of these guys. Uh, I'm batting ninth in the order, and I just hope I don't strike out every time. Maybe I can lay down a sacrifice bunt and get out of the way and not at least hurt the team. 
And it turned out that I had some natural ability, which carried me along. I probably was precocious in, in that respect. I was probably further along at 22 than most broadcasters were. But I think just being in that atmosphere, John, by osmosis, it made me better more quickly. Mm. I think that I wouldn't have been as good as I was, whatever le that level was at 25 or 30, had I not been in that environment at 22. Did you feel back then that you deserved to be in the lineup? You mentioned batting ninth and hoping not to strike out each time for the baseball references. Mm -hmm. However, did you feel when you got the opportunity and you were driving to Columbia to broadcast basketball games for the Tigers mm -hmm. or you were doing the Spirits games here in St. Louis, did you feel, man, at age 22, I may be young, I may look 11, but I fit in here? Well, the feedback from listeners and other people in the industry the feedback was very positive. Uh, and while I certainly don't think I let that go to my head, it did help my confidence and um, my sense of belonging. But you know, there are always people who, looking back on it, resent others who may have more natural talent than they do. And they see maybe this person, I'm sure Joe Buck faced it, and Joe, in addition, faces the ridiculous charge of nepotism. Ridiculous. And it, it follows him to this day. He's in his early 50s. Right. You knew his dad, Jack Buck, very, very well. Jack had a, a tremendous influence on your life. Jack Buck's name may have opened a door for Joe Buck, but he had to walk through it. And there are many, many other broadcasters who are sons or even grandsons of famous broadcasters. And eventually it shakes out that they land somewhere within the hierarchy of the business, wherever their talent says they should land. Joe Buck was not given his talent by virtue of his last name. He absorbed a lot of it by being around his dad and being around the Cardinals and around broadcasting at a very young age, but he had to do it. Okay, now I didn't have that particular albatross, but there were people who resented me um, when I was younger, maybe I was, uh, you know, I have a certain sense of humor and sarcastic and whatnot. And maybe they, they thought, you know, a kid that age shouldn't be saying that sort of thing. Uh, I was always very, very respectful of the older broadcasters, respectful to the point of reverence. But I, I'm sure I inadvertently rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, and this is a random observation, but I think it's the kind of thing that you're interested in, John. A very perceptive friend of mine said to me once, we often do not recognize traits in others that we don't have in ourselves. Mm. We don't ascribe motivations to others that we don't feel ourselves. And whatever my flaws and shortcomings may be, and we all have them, I can honestly say I have never experienced the emotion of jealousy or envy. I admire others, including those within my own field who are good at what they do. I root for them and I'm happy for their successes. Um, I'd like to be recognized fairly for whatever it is I've been able to do, but I don't begrudge anyone else their own success. Um, but I guess I'm slow to realize uh, that others may not look as kindly upon me as I do upon them. <laughs> I believe, Bob, and you can correct me as I'm wrong here, that part of that reckoning 
are those who invested in you and believed in you in those early days. And so I'm going to take you through a couple more pictures and then ultimately sure. end with one that is uh, maybe most moving for you as I not quite back into the slide deck. There you are now. I, so, yes, we're I knew that was going to be it for all of our viewers. This is WGN. No, it's not in St. Louis. It's up in Chicago. Bob, when you and I are together next, I'm going to have you sign this picture for me because this is by far my favorite capture of your presence. I'm not even going to let you comment on it other than to acknowledge this is a beautiful pick. Eventually, though, you lose the gold jacket, you lose the branding of WGN, you come on back home to St. Louis, Missouri, and it is at KMOX that one of my great influences and yours, a guy named Jack Buck, um, you get to sit with and you get to learn from and he gets to invest in you and you get to invest back in him. But for, for our listeners who are tuning in, maybe for the very first time, who may not know the name Jack Buck, they know Joe mm -hmm. Buck. He's the baseball guy and the football guy. Would, would you share with somehow our new listeners who may not know who Jack is, a little bit of who Jack Buck was? Well, Jack Buck was the longtime voice of the Cardinals. And what you have to appreciate is the relationship that a baseball broadcaster has with his local and regional audience, especially if that relationship took hold in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and into the 80s and 90s. Uh, when Jack Buck joins Harry Carey in the booth and briefly Joe Garagiola was with them as well in the 1950s, um, baseball is the unquestioned national pastime. The Cardinals are the southernmost and westernmost franchise in all of baseball. Before expansion and before the Dodgers and Giants moved out west, the, the Cardinals were a huge regional franchise. On weekends in St. Louis, if you looked at the parking lot, around the old sportsman's park or now bush stadium you'd see license plates from oklahoma and arkansas and indiana and kentucky and iowa and into the dakotas and kansas and and all the rest nebraska they were the team of that region i remember mickey mantle who grew up in oklahoma saying that his dad's team was the cardinals because he could hear the cardinals with their fifty thousand watts on KMOX, and there were some 200 stations regionally that carried Cardinal games. That's a different relationship than any broadcaster is able to have today, although the, the, those who come closest to it are the local baseball announcers in the various cities if they're good enough to forge that kind of connection. <clears throat> Buck was not only a great broadcaster, but he was a deeply human man. He had a dry sense of humor, he was wonderful with people, but he wore his heart on his sleeve very often. He was a, an unabashedly sentimental man, and he deeply understood the connection that I'm trying to describe here. He understood, not in a, a way of conceit, but as an understanding of a blessing that he could use. He understood the power he had to put smiles on people's faces or to touch them in some way. And I've, I've never known anyone who devoted as much of their time, as busy as he was at the height of his career with all his broadcast responsibilities, to charitable causes or to answering letters from fans. He was very sensitive to that. Um, and few people know it as well as you do. Um, and you've told that story yourself, and I won't encroach upon that, that sacred territory. That's your story to tell. But just as one episode, 
that I'm reminded of. The Cardinals won game seven of the National League Championship Series for Giants at home in 1987, and they went to the World Series. And as baseball fans know, St. Louis is arguably the best baseball city. Um, they an annually draw more than 3 million fans in a non-COVID situation. Uh, they come from everywhere. They're deeply loyal. Uh, when players who have gone elsewhere come back, like most recently Albert Pujols, they always get standing ovations, even lesser players who are just decent, but they were with the Cardinals for a while. The fans embrace them. All right, so now the Cardinals have won game seven, and the fans don't want to leave. And they're all standing and applauding, and it's 20 minutes after the game has ended, and most of the crowd is still there. And Jack Buck is standing up at the mezzanine level in his booth, looking out over the, the scene and describing it. And somebody turns around and can see him and he waves up at Jack. And the next thing you know, it fans out. And now hundreds and then thousands of fans have turned toward the broadcast booth and they're waving at Jack Buck. Now, no words can be spoken from that distance, but what does that mean? This is their team. It means something to them. They don't have to be crazy baseball fans, but it's part of their lives. And it's part of the generations. Their parents and grandparents cared about this team. Their children and their children will care about this team. And who brought this team to them? Jack Buck did. He didn't know all those people by name, but they knew him. And in a certain sense, he knew them. It's, it's so good about such a worthy, beautiful man. As you know, Bob, I've, I've had the honor of being his friend and, and uh, mm -hmm. profoundly touched by his generosity. And now I have the opportunity of sharing that story around St. Louis and around the world. When I'm finished speaking every single time, locally for sure, many times nationally, an individual will come up from the back of the line and then they'll share their Jackbox story. Not so much about their favorite call of Smith corking one down the line and right, but a story of when they were at Carl's drive-in. And yeah. they said, hey, kid, I got it. And all of a sudden, the man behind them picks up their tab, and it's Jack Buck. An obnoxiously large tip that was left for a waitress who was exhausted and maybe quietly, oh, yeah. nobody knew about it, but Jack maybe sensed it and was generous with them. I spoke at a, a retirement home for veterans two hours south of St. Louis in Cape Girardeau. And after I spoke and shared that story, these older men came rolling over to me and shared, you know, you're not the first to share that story. He used to come down here. It's a man who was busy driving a couple hours to serve and love and encourage those who served our nation. And he wasn't only there. Prisons. We do a little bit of prison work. And Jack was frequently with these prisoners, reminding them that even now, regardless of what they've done, their lives still matter. And maybe the, to put a bow on this, Cam Wex opened up the lines after Jack Buck's passing back in June yes. of 2002. They planned on three hours. If you have a favorite Jack Buck story, call in. We'll leave it open for three hours. I believe it went on for three days of yeah. individuals around, as you said, this massive marketplace individually affected by one human being's voice in life. And I was not one of those who called in. So if John O'Leary, this kid who he profoundly impacted, wasn't one who reached out. Can you imagine the amount of lives impacted through Jack Buck's love and his generosity? Yeah, you know, in and around his passing, um, you could drive around St. Louis, like on the day of his funeral, you go past the gas station where normally the price of the gas or something else is up on their, their message board. God bless Jack Buck. Um, you know, outside of 7-Eleven or whatever it might be, or a high school 
where it might say ordinarily graduation day is such and such, or there's a football game on the weekend. It was something about Jack Buck. And someone asked me once, who is the greatest Cardinal? And I said, well, Stan Musial is the greatest Cardinal, but Jack Buck is the greatest St. Louisan, which takes nothing away from Stan, who was deeply generous with his time and was a, a warm and, and kind man. But I don't think there has ever been anyone, I'm talking about political figures, whatever it may be, who touched more people in and around St. Louis than Jack Buck did. Mm. Bob, we could, we could jam on Jack Buck for the remainder of our time and, uh, and then rock every one of our listeners back to sleep. And so to make sure they stay forward, to stay up with us, not only on Jack mm. Buck's life and legacy, but also on Bob Costas's and also what it means for us moving forward in our lives. I do have a couple more things I want to share sure. before we get into the Live Inspired 7. Uh, there's our friend Jack Buck. Eventually, Bob, you lead not only forward with the NBA and golf and other sports you cover, but the Olympics. And we could spend an entire episode covering the Olympics highlights for you. But in covering your story, Bob, and being part of your community, because you were a St. Louis and still are uh, today. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I loved about you and your career path was that it wasn't always about sports. It wasn't always about sports. And even when you're covering sports, it isn't always about sports. And I think one of the highlights from your career as I look back on it is what you did in the late 80s and early 90s with Later with Bob yeah. Cox. These are some of the folks you covered. You can call out some of the pictures you may recognize. As you look back on those five and a half years, is there, this is hard. It's like picking a favorite child, Bob. You've got two. Tell me who your favorite kid is. But instead of making you do that today, is there an interview or a conversation you had with one of these guests back in that time frame that you look back on as just being highly moving for you? There were so many that were memorable. Uh, if forced to pick one, I would say Paul McCartney. Later has uh, a new life now on YouTube. Uh, dozens and dozens of later episodes, some of which I remember and others uh, I've got to jog my memory uh, to recall, and I don't recall exactly how the conversation went. Sometimes I watch a few minutes of it and go, oh, yeah, that was that was pretty good. Um, the Paul McCartney came on with us in 1991, and at that time, he had not done an extended interview on American television in at least a decade. And it's a different time. It's 30 years ago, you know, the proliferation of outlets that that are more or more or less infotainment i guess entertainment tonight existed then but not all of its uh its imitators um paul mccartney is more available now uh but then it was a real coup to to get him just as it was a coup that robert duval did our show he hardly ever um went on television and part of the reason why and we can take some um some good feeling from this is that when the show had been on the air for a while, people who normally are cautious about doing television recognized it as different um, and that it was something that was worth their time. It wouldn't be sound bites. There'd be some depth to it that I would be well prepared. And I have to uh, credit our researchers with some of that. But I had a wide range of interests. So a lot of it I was attuned to anyway. The research helped, but I wasn't a blank slate to begin with. So anyway, McCartney had seen the show and we had had musicians uh, and people from various walks of life on. And so he felt comfortable coming on. 
And all I could think of as I sat there was, I wonder if the people I went to junior high school and high school with are watching now. And here's Bobby Costas talking to Paul McCartney. And I was also thinking of sitting on the rug um, in front of the black and white television set in my parents' living room in 1963, no, 64. Yeah, early 64. Um, I had not yet turned 12. It was February 64 when the Beatles showed up on the Ed Sullivan show. And it was a gigantic event. It seemed like all of America was watching. And now here I am talking to Paul McCartney. And what's very gratifying, John, is that a lot of people say, real people who are really attuned to the Beatles, that that's the best Paul McCartney interview they've ever seen. Now, a large portion of the credit for that goes to him. He just arrived in a very open mood. Uh, but I'd also like to think that I get some of the credit for it because he sensed that I, that I had some idea what I was talking about. And he responded to that. Let, let me encourage folks, you mentioned it a moment ago, but these shows, many of them live now on YouTube. Yeah, they do. And when you watch the majority of media now, it's laugh track and quick in and outs and camera angles going over here and over there. And yeah. we'll be back in two and a half minutes and nothing happens. It's all gimmicky. These were robust, intimate, emotional conversations where you did something that most interviewers never do. Listen, you, mm -hmm. you would give them the space to be themselves, to respect them as they were, to embrace the story for what it was. Yeah. And then rather than going to question number 17B on the sheet, you would say, tell me more about that. You, you mentioned John Lennon was a negative and it would allow Paul to go far deeper into a story that he may have never shared before. Yeah, um, we had the time. So knowing that we had the time and knowing that if a guest was good enough and interesting enough, we would keep him or her over for another show. The clock was not constantly ticking in my head. Uh, I knew I could ask a follow-up. I knew I could let uh, the person elaborate. And we edited a little bit. If we taped 35 minutes and that was only good enough for one show and basically 22 minutes of content, we'd get the best 22 minutes into it and, and shape it accordingly. So that liberated me. In fairness to someone who's hosting the Today Show or whatever, there's a clock That's ticking right. in their head and there's a producer in their ear and they got to get all this into four minutes or seven minutes or whatever the limitations might be. Uh, but yeah, the, the show had a different metabolism to it. Uh, just the two big chairs and two people facing one another. Occasionally, we'd, uh, we'd add production elements, but not bells and whistles. If Don Rickles was talking about working with Frank Sinatra, we might have a shot of Don with Sinatra, or we might have a video clip, but never something that was directed toward, hey, wait a minute, the audience's attention span is waning. No, we took it for granted, especially at that post-midnight hour, that the phone isn't ringing. Uh, people weren't obsessed with their phones and with their social media and everything else then. So you, you had a better chance of, of holding their attention if you were offering them something worthwhile. But the whole tone of it was different. And what you say now, John, is correct. Very often I'll be watching even a five minute interview on a football pregame show. And for no apparent reason, while the person is answering the question, let's move the camera, have it swoop over the room, or let's take another shot where you see the table legs or the legs of the chair. Why? Because you assume that the, the audience has the attention span of a gnat. We took for granted that at least our core audience was a little bit more thoughtful than that. Now that didn't mean that we were giving them a lecture or something sober. We did a lot of silly things, 
but the range of the show was i think what made it appealing or part of what made it appealing where literally you could talk to a pulitzer prize winner on monday and then take a pie in the face from soupy sales on tuesday and that anything and anything else in between and when people ask me about regrets and someone who's been as lucky as me doesn't uh get to have that many regrets and no one wants to hear it anyway but if i have one professionally i never should have left later as early as i did i left after almost i did it for almost six years and nbc had all the olympics for the foreseeable future the nba on nbc was a very big item in the michael jordan era in the 90s we had all these olympic games and we we had baseball and 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 all the rest and I just had to take something off my plate because my kids were seven and four and I was commuting between St. Louis and New York. And we had to do some 220 shows a year for later, often taping multiple shows on a single day so that I could get back and spend part of the week at home in St. Louis. Um, but in retrospect, I wish I'd done it for twice as long. I wish I'd done it for 10 or 12 years. And people sometimes ask me, could you do a show like that today? I could, but not as well. Because if you said to me, you're going to interview Ed Sheeran or Taylor <laughs> Swift, I could do it. I could prepare to do it. I could right. do a professional job, but I would not be connected to it the way I was connected in my late 30s and into my mid 40s with that generation or multiple generations of, of people who we had on the show. Uh, you were gifted at it. And I, I know you're working with HBO now and providing not 250 episodes, but maybe four a year. And I think those are worth checking out right now. I'm going to go back to baseball for a moment. I know that is your heart, man. You love your family. You certainly love your two babies. And right behind them, I think uh, baseball, Bob, it's one of your first loves. So let's talk about one of our, again, mutual first loves here. Uh, he's one of our friends down at KMOX. That picture of that little boy right now, his name is Tom Ackerman. Tom oh, Ackerman. That's, Tom. He, that's little Tom holding up a matchbox car, wearing that eyes odd shirt. Behind him is his father. Mm -hmm. And I read this story in preparing for today, and Tom's a, a, a mutual friend of ours. I love and respect Tom. I think he's got a great voice and a better heart. But at age 17, Tom had a dream of becoming an announcer. It's an unlikely dream to ever be lived into, but that was his dream. And so he had it set on his calendar to join the sport camp where he was going to learn not how to throw a baseball or swing a bat, but how to become a broadcaster. And the final speaker mm -hmm. after a week was going to be a guy named Bob Costas. The day before he leaves for this camp, his father passes away due to a heart attack in the kitchen. And so this little boy comes along, sees what has happened to his dad as part of that agonizing process. And then of course, doesn't leave the home for a week. Yeah. Until Friday, Bob, when he leaves for the first time to go to sport camp for one hour to hear his hero, a guy named Bob Costas speak. And I'll let you take it forward from there. But I think this speaks to the humanity, not only of what Jack Buck stood for, but Bob, of who you are? Well, Tom's story and mine almost parallel each other. He loses his dad from a heart attack when he's 17. Same thing happened to me when I was 18. Uh, I was an aspiring broadcaster, so was Tom. Um, and after his dad died, as it happens, um, Tom's mom is a longtime friend of my uh, sainted assistant, Pam Davis, without whom I couldn't even function. She's been with me for 37 or 38 years. If she retired tomorrow, I'd retire the next day because I couldn't keep my life straight. 
Um, and so Pam tells me uh, that I should call Tom and, and reach out to him. And so I did, small thing. I guess it meant something to Tom. And that's something that you know, Jack Buck was supremely aware of, all of us should be aware of, um, that by not extending ourselves too much, just by the power of sports and what broadcasting can sometimes mean to people, we, we, have, we have the ability to, uh, to touch people in some way. Um, you know, you try not to think that you're that big of a deal, and I don't, but you need to be aware of, of what you may mean to someone and seize the opportunity to make the most out of that, not for personal gain, but uh, to extend yourself for someone else. For those listening, thinking right now, well, he's Bob Costas. Of course, his voice mattered. Or, or they talked about Jack Buck earlier. Of course, his voice mattered. I remind you that that story doesn't happen if Pam doesn't realize her voice matters and send oh, yeah. the message out. And so th for those of us thinking, oh, my life isn't Bob Costas. Yeah, neither is mine. But my life does matter and my voice does matter. And so do yours, listeners and viewers. So don't, don't forget it. Don't make that lame excuse too frequently we do. And talking one more time about what you did for that boy grieving, after that phone call that you had with them on that morning, you sent him a little picture. It was a picture of you, Bob, but below it, you signed something to the effect of, hey, kid, see you in the press box soon. Meaning you saw for him what he probably lost sight of for himself after the loss of his dad, this ability that he still possessed to do great things in his life. And Tom Ackerman has never forgotten, and neither have I, Bob. It's, it's a really beautiful story of service of doing little things well and and exhibiting you know, I, I, that bob is not only you but going back to this gentleman for the third and final time today we step even closer toward the anniversary of september 11th and the very first ball game played nationally after september 11th it was really the first time doors opened up and people felt free to leave their homes again and gather collectively was at Bush Stadium, was on St. Louis, was on national television. And the first voice, those who were there live, and I was one of them, or those tuning in around the nation would have heard was the voice of Jack Buck. Since this nation was founded under God more than 200 years ago, we have been the bastion of freedom, the light that keeps the free world aglow. We do not covet the possessions of others. We are blessed with the bounty we share. We have rushed to help other nations, anything, anytime, anywhere. War is just not our nature. We won't start, but we will end the fight. If we are involved, we shall be resolved to protect what we know is right. We have been challenged by a cowardly foe who strikes and then hides from our view. With one voice we say we have no choice today. There is only one thing to do. Everyone is saying the same thing and praying that we end these senseless moments we are living as our fathers did before. We shall win this unwanted war, and our children will enjoy the future we'll be giving. What do you remember about what your friend did that evening? 
he had so much, I don't know how to put it, so much goodwill uh, coming back at him from literally millions of people who had followed the Cardinals that he could do things um, that others wouldn't even attempt to do. He knew that he could stand in front of that crowd and read a poem that he had written um, and that the audience would, would be good with that and they would understand why he had the right in that setting uh, to address them. There was a, an occasion where there was a rhubarb at Bush Stadium, I forget the exact particulars, but the umpires were involved in something and uh, maybe they threw Mark McGuire out of a game or something and they were catching holy hell from the Cardinal crowd. And it was the talk of all the talk radio stuff and, and everything. And it, it got kind of nasty. Things don't get too nasty in St. Louis, but got kind of nasty, relatively speaking. And Jack Buck took the microphone on the field before the game, the next game, and said, when the umpires come out here, and you know the umpires come out before the teams take the field, when they come out here, would you give them a round of applause, please? They work very hard and they're good men and they can't be perfect, but they come as close as they can. I, who else could, would have the, the standing with, with the people there to do something like that? It would fall flat if almost anybody else did it. And something else that I'm reminded of, uh, that's only a year or so uh, before, maybe less than a year before Jack's death. And you can see at that point that he's physically reduced. He, in his prime, he was a vibrant man with his hair went prematurely white. He had a certain appearance about him that was part of his presence. Um, and all of us have some ego or else we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. Some ego, you hope it's unreasonably in check. But he was willing to share himself mm even as his ability diminished, he wasn't technically as good as a broadcaster at that stage as he had been. He wasn't as quick, he wasn't as sharp, his voice wasn't as strong because he had Parkinson's disease. Uh, he didn't look quite the same, he was trembling, um, but he was not at all reluctant to share himself with the people who cared about him and to keep broadcasting Cardinal games. He stopped traveling for the most part, did just home games but keep doing them as long as he was able. And I remember he had a, a stock line at some appearances and you're laughing already because I think you know what it is. He said, I gave the Cardinals the best years of my life and now I'm gonna give them the worst. Mm. I know it well. And do you remember the stock line he used when he, uh, when he was asked, what are you gonna say when you meet God? Why have you been so good to me? Why have you been so good to me? A man yeah. with Parkinson's disease and many struggles like the rest of us wanted to know why his life had ended up so blessed. So it's a wonderful way to view our situation, whatever that situation might yep. be. Bob, just a couple more stories while I have you on the line. This is one man who wore the Cardinal red jacket into the Hall of Fame. There was another, clearly the greatest yeah. Cardinal player of all time. And when that great Cardinal player named Stan Usual passed away, they asked one of the greatest announcers and leaders and speakers and spokesperson, not only for baseball, but for life, to eulogize them. And Bob, you, you spoke partially with notes, but partially from the heart for almost 20 minutes. Yeah. 
And there was really only one time, and I have a picture of it right there in front of you, where you had to look away from the notes and look away from the crowd gathered. And off to the side, it was a point where you became really emotional celebrating Stan's life. You were talking about an all-star game as mm -hmm. black players began to join white players, but still felt completely separate and less than those white players, frequently because the white players treated them as such. And you talk, told the story of this all-star game when the great Stan Musial, the greatest of them all, uh, had a different conversation with those players as they played cards. Would you just share part of that story and then tell yeah. us why you were so moved emotionally that day when you shared it? Yeah, here's the story, which was never really publicized in any way. I heard about it from Willie Mays and Hank Aaron separately years and years later. I heard about it first from Hank, and then I asked Willie about it, and he verified it. But this is decades after it happened. This is sometime in the mid-50s, and in the National League clubhouse before an All-Star game, the great Black players, Ernie Banks, Frank Robinson, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, they're off to the side in the clubhouse playing cards. No white players with them. And Stan Musial looks over, sees the scene, and just walks over, pulls up a chair and says, deal me in. I find out later, and people laughed when I told the story, not at the, at the funeral, but when we talked about it subsequently, it's Stan never played cards very much. <laughs> you know, Stan was not overtly political, but he was deeply decent. This isn't a matter of left, right. We're so divided now, everything's politicized. What about just decency? What about kindness? What about empathy? Think of what that meant, not just to those black players, two of whom mentioned it to me decades later, two of the greatest ever, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, not just what it meant to them, but what did it mean to the white players in that clubhouse, many of them from the still Jim Crow South, to see the most accomplished and respected among them make that simple, decent gesture. You know, we all have different emotional triggers. I tend to get choked up, not so much about things that are deeply sad. I feel them. But what often spontaneously chokes me up are simple acts of kindness or grace. S someone who stops when they don't have to, you know, to, to talk to a kid. Mm. Um, the, the star of the football team who's nice to the awkward kid in high school. Those things get to me. And I thought of this a moment ago as we were talking about Jack Buck. And I, I still think about this occasionally, but I never talked about it publicly. Three or four years ago, I'm sitting at the gate at Lambert Airport in St. Louis, waiting for a flight. And you know how they have the TVs overhead and the TV was on CNN. And I don't remember what story it was. And you know, you have to strain to hear it because people are talking and whatnot. So I'm following this story very closely. And a boy, maybe 11, 12 years old, comes up and says, Mr. Costas, very polite, soft voice. And here's what I did. I do this all the time with my wife or whomever. If I'm watching something and she comes in the room, and I just want to finish watching this. It's going to be over in 15 seconds, but I want to hear it. So I'll put my hand up. 
and go, go, go and I hold up one finger like this or, or just like that. Okay. Like, just, which to me is understood it in a second, in just a second. And so I don't even remember what the damn story was on CNN. I'm looking up Mr. Costas. I look, I see him. I go like that. He interpreted that as yeah. don't come near me. Right. Okay. 30 seconds go by. I turned and the kid was gone. I swear to you, John, I walked up and down the concourse looking for this kid. I wasn't even sure that I would recognize him because I caught just a glimpse of him, but maybe he would recognize me. And it, it crossed my mind that I could actually have somebody at American Airlines say, if you were, but then, but then 10 kids who weren't the kid or their parents would show up or whatever. So, you know, I, how many times has that happened to me? That particular thing, never. But how many times has a kid come up to me? Have I ever denied that kid a moment of my time? I can honestly say never. But that kid, who now might be 16, 17 years old, whatever, that kid thinks that somebody that he liked or admired or whatever didn't have time for him. And I know what it would have meant to me if I had seen Red Barber or Marty Glickman or Vin Scully or Lindsey Nelson, and somehow I thought that they had blown me off and I was 12 years old, I would have been crestfallen, you know? And I swear, I went up and down the concourse looking and, and I would have kept looking, but I would have missed my flight eventually. But it, I, still, I still think about it. Um, and I hope the kid got over it because I sure as hell haven't. Bob, it, it just speaks to your humility and humanity that a child who you, the only one you've ever brushed off, you still remember the years later. And I think it plugs perfectly into the final thing I'll ask you before what we call our Live Inspired Seven, seven rapid fire questions near the end. Uh -huh. It's your heart for service. Not only that child, but children in generally and, and here in St. Louis, but candidly around the country and beyond. You've done so much work, some of it loudly and much of it quietly uh, in meaningful ways. And my, my question to you is why? why? Why are you drawn to this work when it's easier to open up your phone and look down? If you have a chance to pay it forward, you should. Um, and I and others who do similar things get disproportionate credit. Uh, that image up there was me cutting the ribbon as they, uh, they added a wing to Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis, which is sort of the St. Louis version of St. Jude's. Uh, no family who's unable has to pay a cent. Kids are taken care of. They get tremendous emotional support as well as uh, first-rate medical care. Uh, and we held, for a quarter century, we held fundraisers for them. Uh, and I tried to make it different than the usual dais with speeches. There were no speeches. It was just a night of entertainment at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And a typical thing was I'd bring in Billy Crystal and Sheryl Crow or Martin Short and Diana Ross or whatever it might be. Um, Faith, Faith Hill and Jerry Seinfeld. Those, those were typical nights. And we raised millions and millions of dollars. But every time as I stood on that stage at the end, I always said that you know, we're, well, we're all here. There are people at that hospital holding a sick kid's hand or letting their parents know the progress and maybe the work, the, the word isn't all that encouraging, whatever it might be. They don't put their 
those people's names on on the program uh, for the the event. Their their name isn't on the marquee at the Fox Theater. They don't get an ovation from the crowd. So really, in terms of time and effort, what those of us with recognizable names do is seldom as much as what the people who are really rolling up their sleeves and doing the work are doing. But at the same time, you recognize what you can do. Mm. I can be plugged into something like that. And with a little bit of effort, I can do a lot of good. So that's a blessing. I don't confuse it with me being any more worthy than someone whose name is in small print and mine is in larger print. But I do realize that it's, it's an opportunity that I have and I try to seize it. Bob Costas, you have been seizing it beautifully during the course of your career. I expect that you will continue to do so going forward. As we wrap up this time, and man, I could spend a lot more of it with you. But and my answers are so long, John, that you only get to one of the seven. We could play the <laughs> lightning round, and I could try to be more concise. Bob, uh, less than 11 words for every answer, please. So here we go. Okay. Bob Costas, number one question. First one out of the box is this. What is the most impactful book? whether it's something you read recently or maybe as a child that has influenced your life. So what's the most influential book that has influenced your life? The Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, which every kid read in high school. And I think certain boys who are a little bit, I don't know, as sensitive as the right word, maybe didn't feel like they fit in. Holden Caulfield was someone they related to. Um, it may seem kind of adolescent then, but I was an adolescent. May seem adolescent now. I was an adolescent then. Catcher in the Rye. Catching kids as they fall off the cliff. Yeah, that's right. That's what the Catcher in the Rye did. Yeah, and 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 he also he also talked about the Museum of Natural History and how he liked to go there because things were quiet. And when he went back there, it was always just the same as before. But then he saw some graffiti on the wall. Why why does somebody always have to mess stuff like this up? What, what, and then, then he went to the, to the amusement park and his sister Phoebe was on the carousel. I haven't thought about this in 40 years in the, in the particular, sister Phoebe's on the carousel and he looked at her and he realized in that moment, here's something that's perfect. Mm. But then some, and there's profanity in the catcher in the eye, some SOB is gonna come along and mess it up eventually. But for these 10 seconds, that's perfect. That's so good. Bob, what, what is one characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Long Island that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Sense of wonder. I think I still have some of it, but when you're a kid, you got all of it. Everything is a first time. Everything is, wow, haven't seen that before. I don't think I'm jaded, but I'm I'm less I'm less apt to be utterly amazed and elevated by something. For our friends tuning in right now, many of these are are my friends and followers. They are aware that John O'Leary published an entire book called In Awe, right. specifically for Bob Costas on how he can return specifically to childlike wonder. So, Bob, I I now know one of the gifts that I'll be sending you in the mail. So be on the lookout for In Awe because. Uh, they will remind you that just because you're older does not mean you can't return to that sense of wonder. It's there for us. It, the plug is now over. Okay, the plug is now over. We move Got into it. question number three, Bob. 
if your mm. home caught fire, your kids are out, your spouse is out, the animals are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one thing that really matters to you. What's the one item that you come racing back outside with? Photo album. You know, so much of what we have now we've digitized and it's a blessing. Uh, it can be done in remarkable ways, uh, but family pictures, um, generational pictures, that would be it. Hmm. This next question, I normally ask it if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach. I'll, I'll ask mm -hmm. it to you a little differently. If you could sit at a stadium and watch Koufax head to head against Gibson and have a long conversation with anyone during the course of that game, anyone living or dead, Bob Costas, who do you wish you could sit right next to and watch that game? Well, since it would be a baseball setting, I would choose Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was only 53 when he died in 1972. If he had lived a normal lifespan, it's very likely that he and I would have crossed paths, that I would have interviewed him. Uh, I know his wife, Rachel Robinson, who was in the late 90s and still very beautiful and still sharp as can be. Um, and I, I regret that I never knew Jackie Robinson. And you know, you know well, John, that a baseball game, especially one that isn't a postseason game, it's just a game in the middle of the season. Of course, Koufax against Gibson is not just any game, but baseball allows for conversation. That doesn't have to be about the specifics of the game. So if I was sitting next to Jackie Robinson, uh, we could talk baseball, but we could also talk uh, the social circumstances uh, that he found himself in and how much he contributed to moving America forward and, and what he thought about the present day as, as we sat there. Uh, a fascinating man, I'm sure. Bob, whether as an announcer, as a friend, as a spouse, parents, professionally, any aspect of your life, what's the best advice that you've ever received? Professionally, the best advice, be yourself, which is easy advice to give and difficult advice to heed. Uh, when I was, especially when I was breaking in television wise, I was in my late 20s looked like I was still a teenager. Um, and Don Olmeyer, who ran NBC Sports, we were playing golf one day and I was telling him stories and cracking jokes and he was laughing. He said, you know, if you never get any better than you are now, you'll have a career, you'll be good. But if you're ever gonna be great, you have to let this part of your personality come out. And I was so concerned with seeming like I belong, especially when you come on camera and somebody outside St. Louis says, who's this kid? So. I was doing kind of a Ted Baxter thing almost, like trying to sound authoritarian, trying to sound like I belonged. Um, and when I became looser and more spontaneous, then there, there, a greater texture to the work became evident. And what was very helpful to me was that I lucked into being on David Letterman uh, when David first, first started in late night on NBC in 1982. And they were looking for Marv Albert or Don Cricky or somebody, and none of them were available. And the secretary in the sports office said, we got this kid, Bob Costas. They said, center on the sixth floor. And he wanted to do this, this mock thing, which he was famous for, elevator races. And he, I, I totally got it because I, I was a Letterman fan. I knew what he wanted. He wanted this mock reverent thing that would play as irreverent, mock serious, inane stuff. And I, I pretty much nailed it. And Letterman loved it. And he kept bringing me back to do things like that. And then eventually to sit with him as a guest. And when that went over really well, 
then, you know, it kind of opened up the doors for me to be myself. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? Your youth is not as short as you think it is. It doesn't end when you're 30. You're still a young man when you're 50. Look, take the long view. Bob Costas, you've been taking and living the long view. The final question to you, my friend, and a guy who I've always looked up to is this. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. So it'll be hard for you, Bob, but how would you like your life to be summed up? One sentence. How I'd like it. I don't know if what others would say. He paid it forward. Uh, for John O'Leary and Amy Lett, my producer, and Tom Ackerman, a great voice here in St. Louis, and for all the children and leaders and other broadcasters and families, Tom, that, that you and Tom and others have influenced Bob through your career, you've been paying it forward, man. I, I want to thank you for this time today, for pivoting from yesterday into today, working through some technology glitches we had on the front side and being a voice of reason and unity in a marketplace when we need a lot more of both. John, thank you so much. The admiration isn't just mutual. Um, you are much more deserving of admiration than I think of myself as being. It's a great pleasure to be on with you. Anytime you call, whatever you need, just let me know. My friends, that is the great Bob Costas. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day to be reminded, your voice matters. The foundation is firm and the best days are in front of us. See you next time. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. It's one of the things that became so clear as Bob Costas shared his story of this kid growing up in Long Island, moving into Syracuse University, coming out west to St. Louis, Missouri, up north to Chicago, back down to St. Louis, ultimately on to the network level of New York and Los Angeles, covering the Olympics. And yet through it all, this was a man who remained humble and wise enough to continually pay it forward, pay it forward. It's something that we have always strived to do organizationally through the work we do and to ensure that these episodes, that motivational messages like the one Bob shared with us today continue to show up in your feed, in your inbox, in your world and in your life. One of the best ways to ensure all those things happen, it's a couple things. Number one is this, subscribe to our podcast. We are available anywhere you tune into your podcast at Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Make sure you subscribe so that on Mondays and Thursdays, these podcast ends up exactly where it should in your world. That's cool. Number two, you have an opportunity of rating and reviewing this show. We think that the more you rate and the more you review, the more in individuals will hear about this work, tune into this work, and then become part of our movement going forward. You can help with that. One of the ways is to rate and review the episode. So wherever you're tuning in, rate and review the Live Inspired episodes with John O'Leary. And then thirdly, and always, you can share these episodes with the ladies and gentlemen you work out with, you worship with, you work with, you're doing life with. Let them know that in this marketplace where there's so much bad news, where every pundit tells you that there is another fire, another storm, another shooting, another tragedy, that in fact those things are happening. But there is evidence of goodness. There are moments of grace. There are individuals who are showing up 
and paint it forward. And you can learn more about that by checking out the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. We stream these occasionally. So if you want to be part of that, wherever you tune into social media, consider checking out the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. You can learn about that at johnollearyinspires.com. I want to thank you all for recognizing the power of your lives. I want to thank you all for having a voice and using it for good. And I want to thank you all for realizing, like I do, that the foundation is firm, that the headwind is real, but that the best days even still remain in front of us. So my family and friends and leaders and sports fans and those who don't like sports for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live inspired. Our friends at L. Keeley are incredibly dedicated to quality, ensuring that they do the right work the first time. Their founder and my friend, his name is Larry Keeley, has always said that quality and service never go out of style. After four decades of proving that truth in his construction business, their customer-centric approach is evident in every single project they touch. Learn more about their work and how they can impact you and your business at KeeleyCompanies.com.